0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk here on Business Radio. I'm Felicity Duncan, and with me a newly returned uh, Alec Hug. Now, Alec. We're going to kick off talking about the elections again, because I think that's really what's on everybody's mind. And I was looking um, earlier this week at some interesting data out of Ipsos. It was a poll that they conducted in the beginning of the year. And one of the things that struck me was a a large number of South Africans, uh, 38% of eligible voters and 37% of registered voters, were saying there's not a political party out there that really reflects their views. Now, that's a big lot of unsatisfied voters. And you see that in many democracies around the world. There's a lot of people who will vote for somebody, but they don't really feel like that somebody is representing them. And to me, this represents a big political opportunity in South Africa for an astute political entrepreneur, somebody like a Macron in France who can look at the electorate and say, geez, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are not feeling a connection to any of the parties that are available any of their options uh, let me take advantage of that to create something new and we're seeing some interesting moves in political entrepreneurship in South Africa uh, trying to capitalize on this fact.
1: Yeah people thinking differently and uh, it was a year ago just over a year ago that I had lunch with Kenton Pillay in um, Santon and At the time, Macron was making his, he he had just won the election and there was a a, a lot of enthusiasm and exuberance in France about this, this different way, this new party that went across all party lines but just acquired people from society who wanted to serve. So no more professional politician. These are people who had achieved various things or felt that they wanted to get into service of uh public service really and this was a way to do it and they were also dissatisfied with what was going on in uh um, in in the whole political environment and the consequence of that was uh that that Kanton, uh suggested or said and he'd done an enormous amount of work on the project by then already and he said that this was a, a, a an opportunity to give people an alternative now Kunth an interesting guy. I I worked with him for a few years uh, when he was the head of um, of news at ETV, and we were uh, back then at Moneyweb. We were supplying the uh, business uh, content to ETV. Um, I was on air for for quite a while, and clearly he was a a guy who knew television very very well. Uh, I I was I was deeply respectful of his mind at that stage and of the a contribution that he could make to uplifting my own skills in this area and uh, we we've stayed in touch since then he, he is Princeton University trained so he's not your guy who's coming out of a, a kind of a hole who's saying let me go and make some money quickly out of this, this political environment he is somebody who thinks very deeply and he when he was taking me through his plans over a year ago he was addressing big issues like uh, the the high level of rape in South Africa or what they call femicide uh, woman being vulnerable and how do you address that and then looked at it with a completely fresh approach and came up with this innovative idea to say every girl child should be trained how to use a firearm and uh, at school. So as they come through because this is a life skill that need, you need to be prepared at a young age for what happens afterwards. And the result of that in his, in his thought and his pretty logical process is that a would be rapist would in future be concerned, would, would, would think to us about attacking a vulnerable person. Uh, if they, if they, if there was the possibility that that vulnerable person had a firearm and knew how to use it. So it's, it's that kind of a thought process that, deals with real issues that are happening in society. He's got similar approaches or had similar approaches to things like uh, uh, cash heists, um, how they would address that, i.e. use less cash in society. Move to a cashless society, then you don't need to move cash around, and then the criminals have got nothing to go and heist, uh, and so on. So I really like the way he, he, he thought about these things, and he's got some uh, like-minded fellows. They don't have a party leader. In uh, in this uh, what do they call it the ZACP the capitalist party they've got ten people who are co-founders and none of them are standing up although Kansan because he is media savvy and uh, and certainly has been a driving force behind it is the one getting uh, having a lot of the airtime but he says that it's uh, it, it's completely multiracial it's young uh, brainy smart people who think differently so. Yeah, is he the? I wrote a year ago that there is a Macron-type movement which they are hoping to launch in South Africa. He, uh, so far, has certainly put uh, the cards that he's played uh, are certainly suggesting that this is something new and something that is going to appeal to perhaps a good percentage of those 38%. And, you know, Felicity, the whole world... Is going through radical change. We know that from, we term it the fourth industrial revolution, and some people get irritated by uh, the description. You could call it the second machine age, which is, in fact, where it first started with with uh, Andy McAfee and um, Eric Brynjolfsson, the they, MIT professors who kind of did the the groundwork in this area, or even before them, their friend Thomas Friedman, who is a New York Times economist. And and wrote the Earth is flat, for instance, and the and Lexus and the olive tree. So there's there's a lot of this understanding that the world is changing, and it's changing in 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 ways that technology has brought. We've become more aware. We we've got access to more information. But politics also has to change. The old political system, which has been with us for hundreds of years, is not is no longer fit for purpose. You it makes no sense to anybody with uh, uh, who who's who's aware or conscious or thinks about these things that you vote for a political party every five years when they lie to you about what they're going to do. Then they don't do what they've lied to you about. And five years later, they lie to you again and you must vote them back in. It, none of that makes sense. So it's not surprising that you're seeing these radical shifts in other parts of the world. And now even in South Africa, where there is an option for those who perhaps have got to that, that, uh, position in their minds of saying, I don't buy into the old system, I don't buy into a party that lies to me or a, a, a party that, that can't even run its own affairs uh, efficiently or only when it's forced into a corner does it become honest with me, um, I want to look for something different and well, these young South Africans have, have, uh, have done their bit to, to offer that option.
0: Looking for um, honesty in the world is is not, of course, uh, only difficult in politics, right? Uh, But we've also seen, I think, a lot of uh, sort of uh, an honesty deficit in our business leaders in South Africa in the last few years. And I'm thinking here, of course, particularly about Steinhoff. We had some developments on the Steinhoff front this week with the parliamentary hearings and the naming of uh, eight people you know, responsible for the chicanery and malfeasance uh, on the Steinhoff side. And you had some interesting things to say about that, um, and in particular about the, the particular people who got named.
1: Well, it is a company that I know well. I've served on a couple of boards with Marcus Euster, uh the Racing Association board, um, and then as a consequence of that on the Pumalela board. So I got to know him pretty well through our mutual interest in horse racing. It's actually quite an, uh, quite an ironic thing on Sunday uh, where I, uh, when I was in South Africa. Um, the Sunday Times has a property section. And on the day that the Steinhoff uh, report from PwC, or certainly the summary of it, was, was uh, all over the Sunday newspaper, uh, there you had in the Sunday Times property section – the front uh, on the front page, the White House, which not too many people, I suppose, are aware of, but it is the old Steinhoff headquarters, the real headquarters, in Johannesburg. It's It used to be Grant Andrew's office furniture. It's on that hill as you go along Jan Avenue towards the city, um, between in in Park uh, Parktown, uh, and it's it's on the left hand side, quite a quite a prominent uh, building. And that is where Marcus used to hold court. Uh, every year he would have a Christmas party. Uh, as I don't drink, I never really got into the festivities. But um, as uh, as a courtesy, I would, I would when I was invited, I would arrive, and and you would see the only men, um, sometimes cla- uh, scantily clad uh, waitresses, uh, and then uh, different entertainment that had been arranged for. These insiders, and it often I uh, often wondered how a business uh, could be run along these lines there were uh we used to have our racing association board meetings in the White House, so this was pretty much Marcus Euster's lair, if you like a little bit like like uh, uh, the sale of this for twenty eight and a half million rand or that's what it's on the market for is another reflection of the end of uh, of of an era for for Steinhoff but what is coming out here is is really in a way pretty strange you you have a new chief executive Louis depre who was with Worksman. so he's a he's a lawyer uh, also on his group uh, there's a small group of uh, Steinhoff directors who uh, from the board who are involving themselves in the actions with Uh, with PwC and and where to next now it's very interesting when you have a look at the members of that uh, subcommittee Uh, there's an American who is a litigation specialist there is another uh, attorney who's also been busy in mergers and acquisitions and and that kind of litigation and of course you have the who himself is from that background so it's not surprising to me that they only released 11 page summary and in lots of legalese, you had to go through it carefully to try and understand exactly what they were saying. But what they were saying was as follows. Whenever Steinhoff needed extra profits to either bolster uh, the the poor operating performance um, or to, uh, to, to push up its profits ahead of an acquisition, they simply created it. So they created these third parties and they used people outside of the group to uh, put together these uh, ostensibly independent but definitely not uh, entities, which would then buy services in inverted commerce from Steinhoff, uh, inflate the profits of Steinhoff, and the numbers then looked really good. These entities were all in Europe, so they were not audited by Deloitte. They were audited by a small firm in Germany, who were obviously in on the game. What the, the PwC report has said is that over 10 years, there was an amount of six and a half billion euros that was added to Steinhoff's bottom line, in other words, added to its profits through this mechaniz- uh, mechanism. It, what it didn't do was identify who the people were who were involved. Now, through a process of elimination and also by having a look at what the people who were close to U.S. over these 10 years, because remember, it started 10 years ago, you then get a little cater of individuals. Um, I named them as the as the Steinhoff dirty half dozen, led by Yuster with another five, the financial director, the head of M&A. He's real in a circle, which interestingly enough did not include the chief operating officer, Donny van der Merwe, who, who must be feeling really awful because he's lost everything. Plus he's lost he's, he's got huge debt because that's the way they used to gear up at, at Steinhoff. And he wasn't even in on the game <laughs> with with, uh, with the, the U.S. Uh, confidants who've all left. Now, in Parliament, clearly somebody must have read that story because the politicians then asked Priya and badgered him and said to him, we want names, we want names. And he gave eight names. But interestingly enough, he gave four of those names with third parties. So they were not uh, easy to find out, but four people, European Uh, people who had created these entities. And then another four names were Eurster and uh, Dirk Schreiber, who we uh, we knew was the chief financial officer of the European operations. Clearly, he's right in the middle of it. But then two other names, which were unusual to me because those two people, Stefan Krobler and uh, Ben Legrancy, had both been specifically excluded in Eurster's letter, which he wrote to the staff. So he said these two guys didn't know about if you like, made off 17th floor. But he didn't say anything about the other members of the Dirty Half Dozen, which I named. Now, now there was another thing that was quite um, interesting to me in all of this. As you read carefully through the PwC report, it says that legal documentation was uh, created after the event. Now, neither Le nor uh, Grobleh, have any legal knowledge. The one's an accountant, the other guy uh, ran the trade or was a company secretary. So who was the legal guy doing all of this? They, he wasn't named. Well, it, it's not difficult to work out that it would be the chap who's very close to Euster um, called uh, du- Duplessis or Johan Duplessis, uh, who's their legal head, who was an advocate of the high court and uh, was the legal counsel. But he wasn't named uh, by by Duprier. Now, you, you, all of this is very interesting and will only come out in time. But it appears that the, 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 there's a small group of people who were instructed by Yester to do certain things, and those people are now starting to emerge, either as state witnesses uh, helping, and uh, we do know from the PwC report that somebody's on the inside, somebody who was on the inside is helping them, um, or that they lying low and uh, waiting for their day in court. So it's a it's a fascinating development, but one which is South Africa's version of Bernie Madoff's operation, uh, which was the the most publicised, the fifty billion dollar uh, Ponzi scheme. This was another Ponzi scheme as well, but in a corporate sense, where they used creation of of fictitious profits. Uh, to draw money in from the investment community globally. If you do that, if you've got something like that operating in a company and you don't have auditors who can ring the bell, and in this case, Deloitte was not allowed to look at those books. They were being audited by a German firm. Then you really are at the mercy as, a, as an investor. And I guess the best thing we can learn from this as investors or as people who entrust others with your money is just triple check. Who the audit firm is that is involved. And if they have a, uh, unless you know who they are, uh, steer clear.
0: Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, one is available on biznews.com in our premium section. Remember, you can sign up for premium, it's just £5 a month. You get access to all our great premium content and full digital access to the Wall Street Journal.